0: You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. So, you know what happens? I'll, I'll, I'll try this the reverse. So... If the beauty of the taco is rooted in its ability to maintain the distinctiveness of its ingredients unified in the taco, let's do the reverse. So, these are, these are four Dairy Queen tacos. Uh, they're Dairy Queen tacos not because they're good, but because I'm cheap and I didn't want to spend a lot of money on this illustration. Uh, because what I did was to uh, throw those four tacos in a Vitamix and mix in a little bit of salsa and a little bit of water and ground it up so that we had a totally, completely unified taco. And that's what it looked like. And I can tell you that uh, it still smelled like a taco, and it kind of tasted like a taco. You could kind of get the taco thing, but it was gross. Um, It was like a baby food taco if they made those things. The same ingredients there, but the ingredients had lost their individual identity. And they formed this unified and homogenous and gross taco. So, that's kind of the theme of the message today, is how do you maintain diversity in unity? How much unity can you have and still reflect the beauty of diversity? And how much diversity can you have and yet still be unified? You know, I think these are important questions today as our country wrestles with increasing polarization in almost every way we can imagine. We see it on TV. If, uh, if you have a particular worldview, you find your news channel, and that news channel is going to talk like you. It's going to look like you. It's going to think like you. We do it. In all the different places, we have choices. Um, the political issue of immigration raises this fundamental question of how much of America is homogenous in a melting pot versus how much is distinct and different. We see it in our schools. We see it everywhere. You know, another word for polarization would be segregation which is a harder word for us to talk about. But I think it's also true that in our society today, we are increasingly segregated. Our neighborhoods are economically segregated. They're unified or homogenous economically. We see it in our schools, in our friendships, and even our church. It's the way of the world. We find folks like us, and then we huddle up. We're united in our similarity. And our passage today is Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. That's Ephesians 2, 11 to 18, if you want to turn there. And it paints a very different picture of the radical, countercultural reconciliation that cuts across every line we can possibly imagine. And it is so beautiful that it was worth the death of Christ. It is so beautiful that it will continue on into eternity. And my prayer today is that dis- somehow, despite my weakness and limited ability, the God's Spirit would show us the beauty of unity in the midst of diversity. The beauty that is possible through the cross in the midst of diversity. So as you're turning to Ephesians 2, I'll set some context. We wrapped up our series last week on 2 Timothy, which was written by Paul to the pastor at the church of Ephesus, Timothy. And this letter was written about five years prior to that, before Timothy was the pastor, but to the same church. And we'll pick up in chapter 2, just after what might be some of your favorite verses in the Bible, kind of the most succinct statement of how we are saved, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then we pick up here in chapter 11, and it explores kind of the implications of this truth. What does this look like? This act of grace where God steps in to save us. So here's how we'll do this. I'm going to read the passage in its entirety. Then we'll divide it into three sections. Verses 11 and 12 are divinely divided. 13 through 17 is divinely united. And then verse 18 is divinely empowered. But before we start reading, I need to give you two warnings. The first is that while I was in seminary, I wrote a 24 page single spaced paper on this passage, which is about three times longer than a normal sermon even Ross Strader's normal sermons. And I assure you, it's much more boring than Ross's sermons. So that's the first warning, which is to say, there's so much to say about this passage that we won't even begin to touch about on everything. And the second is that we're going to talk about something today in church that's very hard for us to talk about in our culture today, and that's Race. But if there's a place that we should be able to talk about it, it should be here in the church, united by the Spirit. So here's my prayer. As my words today are true to God's words, I pray that God's Spirit would do what He says He does with His word and that it would cut us deeply. But to the extent that I stray from God's word, or I unnecessarily offend, I pray that those words would be forgotten and that it would not detract in any way from the truth of this passage. So let's read the text, beginning in verse eleven. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at the time, at that time separated from Christ. Our first section, verses 11-12, is divinely divided. So who is it that's divided? Looking at verse 11, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision. So it's the Gentiles who are divided, which is everyone who is not Jewish. In fact, the word here translated as Gentile in Greek is ethne. We get the English word ethnicity. And in other places it's translated as the nations or the peoples. It's the same word used in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, where Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. The same non-Jews are also called the uncircumcision since the mark of the covenant of Abraham had been circumcision from that point forward. And Paul points out that physical circumcision is a human work not a divine work. In fact, the Greek word here is the same one that describes the inferiority of idols made by human hands. It's even used to describe the temple itself when it was contrasted with the earthly temple versus the spiritual temple that Jesus was building. Just as Paul wrote a few verses earlier that we are, not, we are saved not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. In the same way, this is not a human action that we're talking about here. It's not human hands that do this. It is a gift of God. And Paul's request to remember is in the present tense, which has the sense of we need to continue to remember. And that was true for the church at Ephesus, even though they only had to remember back a couple of years ago when the Gentiles were excluded. But it's just as true for us today, 2,000 years later in a church that's overwhelmingly made up of Gentiles. So it's harder for us to remember, but no less important, to continue to remember the great gift that is being included in the family of God where we were once excluded. But in case his readers have forgotten, or we have forgotten, Paul is going to remind us of what being excluded looks like. This is what being excluded from God's redemptive plan for the last 1500, years had looked like by listing five former realities of the Gentiles. They were. They were separated from Christ or the Messiah, which is, could be translated as probably better as, as without Christ. The second is they're alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, which is God's chosen people and his chosen nation. They were strangers to the covenants of promise, these are the covenants that the promised the future blessings of Israel that would come through Messiah. They were hopeless. This was not going to get any better for them through anything that they could do for themselves. And five, they were without God in the world. Which didn't mean there were parts of the world where God wasn't. It just meant that they didn't have access to Him. They were separated, alienated, strangers, hopeless blocked, because as God's plan of redemption unfolded, it started with a select few, a select line of Abraham, of his descendants, and although you can look back later and see that it was God's plan all along, that all of the nations would come to work him, the Jews have become so focused, even prideful of their segregation, their separation, that they were failing at their role of being priests the nation of bringing the nations to their God you know it's hard for us to fully understand the depth of that division today what well, could you imagine them where you would be divided by religious cultural social racial political and linguistic barriers you know the closest thing that I could imagine would might be if Al Qaeda fighter from Yemen moved in next door to you. I have a different religion, a different language, different cultural customs, dark brown skin, speaking Arabic, which for all but a few of us, see Paul out there, would be a big problem. We couldn't understand what they were saying. Be like oil and water, it just wouldn't mix. As different and as separate as we can imagine, that's divinely divided. Now look at verse th- verse thirteen. But now, in Christ Jesus. But now, in Christ Jesus, what was once divinely divided is now divinely united, and as completely as Jews and Gentiles were once separated, they're even now more so divinely united. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Again, this is not a human action. This isn't Jews and Gentiles deciding it would be better if they just got along. This is a divine action. The eternal Son of God stepping out of glory into His creation as a man living sinlessly and dying on a cross. Not because He deserved it, but because We deserved it. We deserve to be on that cross to pay the just price for our sin. And the benefit of this divine action is we are brought near. It's the passive voice. It's something that was done to us. Brought near. No longer separated. No longer alienated. No longer strangers. No longer hopeless. And no longer blocked from God. So how does something like that happen? The text says it's the cross, specifically the blood of the cross, the blood of Jesus, Son of God, and Son of Man. So this inclusion, this unity, this reconciliation between the races, that here seems to be the focus on bringing this outsider in, of reconciling the Gentiles to the Jews, or even better, the Jews to all of the nation. All of the races, reconciling them to God, but then also reconciling them to each other. And that type of unity comes at great, infinite cost. The blood of the Son, the life of the Son. And while we often reflect on the individual, on the great price paid for our individual salvation, of us being reconciled to God, and we know to appropriately respond, in gratitude to God's grace towards us. This passage points out one of the results accomplished by Jesus on the cross at great cost is the reconciliation of all the races to Him and to God, and as a result, reconciling those races to each other. As Americans, we have a worldview that tends to emphasize the individual, which has lots of benefits. So we talk about things like free will, personal responsibility, liberty. We use phrases like lifting yourself up from your bootstraps. But it also seeps in and impacts our view of what happens at salvation. We even use terms like making a personal decision as exclusively an individual act or personal, which at one level it is, but God's redemptive plan is not just to redeem individuals. It's for peoples. And as Paul tells us in Romans 8, 19, that it's for all of creation. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who had subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God and this isn't just a peaceful coexistence or indifference between the races it's divine unity verses 14 and 15 for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two making peace this means that Jesus not only did something that brought peace he is actually peace himself for us he is our peace and by meeting the just requirements of the law by remaining sinless until his death he fulfilled the law which nullified it which rendered it powerless he removed those divine requirements that had previously, separated the Jew and Gentile. But couldn't you read verse 14 where it says he made us both one, or in verse 15 where he says that he's created one man in place of the two, and read that racial differences have been wiped out completely. I don't think so for two reasons. The first is that Paul's referring to the church, which he often uses the metaphor of the body to describe how all these parts fit together. The second is elsewhere in Scripture, we see races continuing out even into eternity. For example, take a look at Revelation 8, verse 9. John, the author describing heaven, says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. So in a place where there is no sin, where they purely and authentically worship the Lamb, John, writing what he saw, still saw race. He still hears different languages. He recognizes the different ethnicities. So in a place and time not impacted by sin, truly grasping the glory of the Lamb, Responding in authentic worship, and the way John describes the beauty of this scene is its size. It's a multitude too great to count. And it's diverse. Every nation, every tribe, every people, every language, perfectly united in their worship of the Lamb. The diversity of the work of worshipers is what strikes John. And should strike us you know we don't say the Lord's prayer very often in our corporate corporate worship but the second verse of that prayer Matthew 6 10 says your will be done on earth as it is in heaven you all know those words you want to know what the will of God looks like in the area of race in heaven it's this picture an army of true worshipers united by their faith, united in their praise, yet still diverse in every way imaginable. So it's not that the racial diversity has gone away in this passage. It's been transcended. The most important thing about us is not our race or ethnicity. It's whether we have been reconciled to God. But do we look for or expect this type of reconciliation in the church today. So let's talk about our expectations as generic Christians on what we would expect to see when someone comes to faith. When they become a believer, if you ask the generic Christian what the results of that here on earth, they'd say something like, well, they should sin less. And certainly we see Scripture encouraging us to sin less. If you dig a little deeper... Maybe you would hear them say, Well, I'd expect to hear, to see some fruit, to see some good works that would be evidence that God had done something in them. Which is what Paul's just finished saying back in verse 10 that for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which means we should do good works, but the emphasis in our passage today is on the reconciliation of the races the peoples and the nations to God and to each other. And I think that's here where our American individualism causes us to read this a little differently because I don't think we bring the same level of expectation of the results or the evidence of salvation to the area of racial reconciliation. And we should. It should include the reconciliation of the races amongst believers. So let's take Bethel, for example. Obviously, we have some races represented here today, but we all mostly look white, if you haven't noticed. Which is not unusual for churches in Tyler or really most places in America. You know, but it hasn't always been like that. In the last 200 years, as a country, we've moved from segregated pews to segregated churches. There's a saying you might have heard that Sunday mornings were the most segregated hours of the week. When I was researching that saying, I learned, and maybe you already knew it, that Martin Luther King said that in 1963. And it's likely still true today. LifeWay Research did a survey of American churchgoers in 2015 and found that on average... 80% of an individual church attendees were from the same race. And worse, everybody's okay with that. Less than half of the respondents felt their church, 40%, felt their church needed to become more diverse. And worse, 33% were strongly opposed to becoming more diverse. And the trend is worse among evangelicals and whites. Evangelicals, 71%, are most likely to say their church is diverse enough. While whites, 37% at least, are likely to say their church should become more diverse compared to 51% for African Americans and 47% for Hispanics. So how do you feel about that question? Is Bethel diverse enough and for me the answer is no but if we really are divinely united like this passage says if one of the effects of the cross is the reconciliation of the races amongst believers why are we so separated on Sunday I want to give you three reasons one cultural one practical and one theological the first is cultural Cultural explanation is what I'll call the noceums, which are really annoying bugs that you can't see. But here, it's people who say things like this I really don't see race anymore. I'm colorblind. It's really not an issue for me. Which you almost always hear this from the majority race, at least here in America. You know, as an aside, one of the funny things about going to visit our churches that we support in Sierra Leone, which is in Western Africa, is they don't have the same racial hang-ups that we do in our culture. And so um, when you head out of Freetown, which is the big city, into the villages uh, to visit the churches, you know what happens? Uh, People stop, especially kids, and they stare at you, and they point, and they say, Hapatu, Hapatu which means white man, which because obviously I'm a white man and they aren't. It's obvious to them and they notice it. Let me put it this way. If you don't see race, you're missing out. To not see race is to minimize or ignore the creativity of our Creator. In the same way, we would marvel at all the different ways God can paint a sunset, all the different ways that he can chisel a mountain range that is unique and beautiful, the way he can wind a stream through a forest countless numbers of ways. We celebrate that creativity in creation. And in the same way, we should marvel at the beauty of the races that he created. And in the same way, to not see race is to not see the full scope of what happened when Jesus died on the cross. It's like the difference between real tacos and the baby food version. One is beautiful and makes you happy. The other is gross and it doesn't put a smile on your face. So that's the cultural explanation. Here's the practical explanation for why we don't see more diversity at church. Every survey about church growth that I have ever read, everything that says why would someone who doesn't go to church decide to go to church, the number one reason is a friend invites them. And if you don't have friends of other races, you're not going to invite them to church. So honestly, I believe that one reason our church is overwhelmingly white is that most of us, a lot of us, don't have friends from other races. We might have acquaintances, someone we went to school with 20 years ago, maybe someone that we work with or has a kid on our kids' sports teams, or maybe we're just Facebook friends. Maybe that kind of friend where you sometimes you look at that name and go, how do I even know that person? But are they the kinds of friends that you would invite over for dinner? Are they enough of a friend where you can actually have a spiritual conversation with them? Enough of a friend to invite them to church. I believe we're a white church largely because we don't have friends from other races. That's the practical reason. Now to the theological reason. Let's go back to another worship scene in heaven. This time, Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10, where the worshipers here say, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So the same precious blood in our passage today ransomed all those different people for God so that all these different kinds of people could be priests to God. So if the nations were ransomed for God and if the plan of God all along was to reconcile all people and all races to himself, and our passage today says that he accomplished that at the cross, and if that same plan persists Into eternity, then who do we know who desires above everything else to oppose the plan and purposes of God? You know, it's pretty much impossible to say this without sounding like the church lady from Saturday Night Live. So I'll just say it it's Satan, Satan, the enemy. The reason Bethel is so white, the reason the American church is so segregated, the reason the history of the church here in America has been on the wrong side of so many racial issues, the reason the worldwide church has so often acted in a way that denies the truth of the beauty of unity in the midst of this racial diversity, beyond our own sinfulness, of course, is spiritual warfare, which is why this issue of race is so hard. Us. It's hard for us individually. It's hard for us as a church. It's hard for us as a country. So, what human force can prevail against our spiritual enemy? What army is strong enough to defeat this? What political ideology is persuasive enough to reconcile the races? What laws would be strong enough? to protect us against this type of division and the answer is none not a single one but fortunately but god the same god who has divinely united us has also divinely empowered us look at verse 18 for through him it's jesus we both have access in one spirit to the father This is one of the verses in the New Testament where you see all three members of the Trinity in the same verse at the same time. Because as I think about it, this is the perfect example of beautiful unity in the midst of diversity, if not the Trinity. Through faith in Jesus, through His blood on the cross, we are reconciled to God and we are reconciled to each other and that same One spirit comes to live inside us, makes us new creations, changes our affections because we have a new heart, which changes the way we think and see the world because we have transformed minds from all tribes, from all people, all races, all languages, yet united in one spirit. One of the great things about going on a Bethel missions trip, which all of you should do, or maybe any mission trip, but Bethel trips first, is that you get to see the unity of one spirit in action. So one of my first trips with Bethel was to Italy. I know that sounds rough. But beyond the good food, the gelato, the coffee, the art, the history... You know what the most beautiful thing was? was going to an italian church on a sunday morning and witnessing people of a different ethnic group in a different language worshiping the same god that we have united by the same spirit and you know what the weird thing is you show up in a place like that and you love these people you don't even know them yet that spirit is powerful enough to unite us all. And if you can't afford to go on an international mission trip where that deadline's passed, here's another option. Go visit a church. Just once. You don't have to go, like, away. Just visit it once. Visit a church that isn't white. Even here in Tyler, and you'll see that we are united by the same Spirit and it will show you a little glimpse of heaven, of that picture of what it could look like where every tribe, every nation, and every tongue worships with one spirit, with beautiful diversity in the midst of unity. It's better than a great taco. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace.